Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Something for the Turbo. I am your host, Jules. I hope you are all well wherever you are listening in the world. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast, I ask every week. But please do subscribe if you haven't yet and tell all your cycling friends and make sure you download the Unfound app as well. It's really easy. It's in the App Store or on Google Play. All you need to do is download it, register, join the global community of cyclists, get on there, share your rides and photos and articles and stories and loads more. Connect with cyclists from around the world. The more of you we can get you on there, the more people we can get posting, the better the platform becomes. And we've got lots of exciting plans for the platform in the future if we get more of you on there. Anyway, I also wanted to give another shout out to friends of the podcast and friends of Unfound, Roebuck Estates. As we move ever rapidly towards the festive period, you should definitely check out Roebuck Estates. They are award-winning, magnificent English sparkling wines grown in the stunning Sussex countryside. All you need to do is go to roebuckestates.co.uk. That's roebuckestates.co.uk. And you can choose some of their magnificent award-winning offerings on there. They also supply all around the world as well. So if you're listening from outside the UK, drop them a line. I'm sure they'll be able to tell you where you can find their produce. Anyway, today I was joined by Henry Furness and it was a really enjoyable conversation. We discuss his journey from, well, being a, a top personal trainer before personal trainer was really a thing to becoming an elite cyclist and then becoming a cycling entrepreneur when he established the UK bike brand Windy Miller. He talks us through the white knuckle ride of growing a cycling brand as the sport in the UK took off, sponsoring teams, the lessons he learned along the way, and then leaving the brand he built. We also discuss what he's been up to over the last few months during COVID and lockdown with new, very exciting projects soon to be announced on the very near horizon. We also discuss 3D printing carbon and chicken and lots, lots more. So without further ado, let me bring you today's guest, Henry. Henry, thank you so much for, for joining us today. How are you? You doing a good? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Well, it doesn't feel like a good thing to say in the broad scheme of things but I've been enjoying lockdown it's been a good opportunity to get stuck into future plans so yeah all good thank you yeah absolutely you mentioned that on the phone the other day it's, it's not the the usual response when speaking to people at the moment so it's actually quite nice to hear that you've had a, a pretty productive and enjoyable lockdown in, in many respects but we'll come on to all of that in due course because very interested to delve into to what you've been doing over lockdown and what the future holds but for everyone listening why don't we go back a little bit and, and talk about your sort of journey firstly into cycling and then and then the sort of windy miller story and how that all came about yeah well i mean my 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 route into cycling i've i've had no family members that were into cycling in any particular big way but i just loved riding a bike as a kid because for me it was escapism and, a, and an ability to travel really so you know showing my age this was a long time ago in sort of late 70s but early 80s all my mates were bmx kids and i didn't have a bmx i had a little rally spider road bike because i could ride around on it and, and cover big distances and it seemed strange to me at the time but i'd go to mates houses that were probably like up to 15 miles away and their parents would be you what you you rode here but that's just what i love doing fast forward loads i never got you know cycling wasn't huge certainly not in the sort of environment that I grew up in. So yeah. in the school I was at, actually, when I was sort of 13, me and a friend had aspirations to 
try and be pro cyclists. So we took our bikes to school and, you know, this, this was boarding school as it happens. And, um, they confiscated our bikes and locked them in the basement. And that was that. And, and I think, I think now if we'd been at the same school, well, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar there's probably a school cycling club. And as with any other, yeah. uh, organization or institution you can bet your bottom dollar that one in ten of the staff are avid cycling nuts so for that time there's a massive cultural shift in the uk isn't there been really just with regards to how much cycling has boomed i suppose i suppose you you're at school what in the in the late 80s i suspect you're talking about yeah yeah sort of that was from 87 through to 1993 and you know yeah. for me that those are those formative years where if you were ever gonna sort of have a pro career it's very unhealthy to think what if i went back in the time machine but you know if i'd been more i don't know i we we tried hard actually but we were told that the roads around the school were too dangerous and that we'd get squished so it was a guy called chris boudier actually who knows what he's doing now but i remember we used to sneak down to the basement and look through like a crack in the in the sort of vaults that our bikes were locked in and we could just see them through there and that's as close as we got but um you know it's a sign of the times that it's it's a shame but i i never got to indulge it at that age and then your focus goes elsewhere and it wasn't actually until i became a student i i still loved riding a bike and using a bike to get from a to b and it, it wasn't until i was a student in halls of residence that i spied in one of the rooms near mine that someone had a DeRosa bike that had those god I forget the name of them those really ornate campaign brakes that kind of looked like a sail and yeah, yeah, yeah. he spotted my old knackered Reynolds 501 road bike and I remember him saying do you want to go for a ride and my response was yeah sure where, where, where are we going are we going to the shops are we you know what, what's the plan he said no just a ride and I can remember being quite flummoxed by the idea that you'd just ride a bike just to go for a ride turned out he was already racing and he was sort of racing with chris newton at the time who obviously went on to olympic success and all of that and my friend ali would probably forgive me for saying that he went slightly the other way went more sort of sick boy from train spotting and spent too much time getting drawn into the mid-90s rave scene but uh, he got me into into cycling more. That's when I sort of started riding a bit more. Got those shoes that you could clip into the pedals and all that, and yeah, got into it that way. Very good. And where 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 in the world were you at uni? I was in Durham. I should stress that I wasn't at Durham University. I was at the equivalent of Durham Poly, which was far less studious and much more debauched. Yeah. And even after that, even after graduating, moving back to London. It wasn't until I was about 26 that I got a better bike using a tax rebate. And um, one of my flatmates said, "You've got this amazing bike. Why, why aren't you doing anything with it?" And I was like, "Right, okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start using this bike in olden days again." Got out yellow pages, found out where the local club was, and it just turned out that the local club was a triathlon club, which wasn't a big thing then either. So I just thought I'll join that one because it's local. It was in Islington, and I was in Camden. And so just stumbled into triathlon, which obviously is the antichrist for most cyclists. So I did that till I was 29 and did the age group worlds and then realized pretty quickly that my swimming was terminally shit for want of a better expression and used to get the quickest bike split quite often in triathlon. So I decided to hang up the um, running shoes and swimming goggles and just race and um, bike race, that is, and 
I had a friend who was a director, an aspiring director in Camden at the time, and he wanted a subject matter to, to make a show reel. And I said, well, look, I've got this idea of trying to get from unranked to elite in a year as a cyclist, which to the best of my knowledge at that time hadn't been done before. I've got a few mates. I know a few people that have done it now. So we made a little film about that that we've still got. We made it in 2004. We filmed wow. my first race. And, you know, it's a sign of the times again. We were they, It was at Truxton Motor Racing Circuit, and it was a fourth cat only race, and they allowed us to film it out of the back of a car. I only had tri-kit, which must have really annoyed the other racers. I'm embarrassed about it now, but I, I was wearing a sleeveless top, no socks, try London on my ass, and to rub salt into the wounds I, of the other riders I won it so won my first bike race and and being footloose and fancy free at the time having lots of time to train and everything else I managed to get to elite one year later so we pulled it off but I was 30 by Amazing. then and then I got married a couple of years later had kids and you know that my my little sort of dabble with having time to race was very short so yeah, yeah your, your foray into elite sport was was brief fleeting yeah and exactly that, was, now that film is- there was this moment when when i think my wife was pregnant with our first child and i was still before i met her i had indulgently started taking tuesday off each week because i was a self-employed personal trainer took tuesday off to do a long ride and she was incensed with rage that I would be so indulgent about my recreation to take a whole day off. And I mean, ultimately, she had a point. It was unfortunately, it was just recreation. So yeah, I had to start working on Tuesday again. And um, my defense was always you can't race premier calendars unless you've done at least one long ride a week. But Ultimately, these premier calendars at that stage in life were just costing lots of money. And I think to date, I've um, paid more money in fines than I've made in prize money racing. So yeah, she had a point. Fair enough. The film about your journey, is, is that is that somewhere on YouTube? Uh, it's not, it's not actually. And I tell you why it's not, because again, it was the olden days. So YouTube wasn't around. So we weren't, because it was a show reel just to show to other people. We didn't have to worry about the soundtrack. And it's got an Iggy Pop and White Stripes soundtrack. And we keep on talking about changing the soundtrack so that we can put it on YouTube without getting into trouble. So we will do that at some point because it is a, it's a real classic because we talk about uh, whether it's possible to get to elite without, you know, with a full time job. We go and interview Johnny Clay, who was head of British Cycling at the time. This is all before I do that first race. And Johnny Clay saying the thing is, you know, if you're working, you're not going to be able to recover properly. You're not going to get enough sleep. You're not going to eat right. So it's going to be a massive challenge. And then he goes on to say, your only other option is to try and get sponsorship. But he says, you know, the problem you've got here in the UK is no one's really into cycling. You know, there's there's no there's no momentum behind it. You know, it's not some it's not like France, Spain, or Italy where there's a lot of good riders and people are excited about it. And it's like, wow, how times have changed since then. You know? Yeah, it's amazing. So yeah, it's, it's a real cool. nice blueprint of pre-Renaissance cycling world yeah. you know because back then it was really just david miller roger hammond and charlie wagalius being the eternal domestique and that was really it 
in the pro peloton back then yeah. Boardman, of course yeah it's amazing it's like a little little time capsule of yeah. domestic. so so obviously you had your little foray you, you, you got married you had kids how did the the windy miller story start and tell us a bit about that yeah so that that was fairly straightforward both my wife and I were personal trainers in London. I had a company called The Firm, which was mobile personal training. And you know, I used to bum around in a little Mercedes A-Class with all the kit in the back. So it was mobile personal training, but without any compromise. So you took, we used to take a concept to rowing machine around, Swiss ball, weights, all that sort of stuff. And it was just, it was just when personal training was becoming mainstream. Like shortly before that, it was only really Madonna that you heard about having a personal trainer. And because it was all quite new and quite fresh, got quite a, quite a lot of press through that. So did stuff in the Sunday Times and then various other magazines off the back of that. Then went on to BBC London News and then started sort of being the go-to personal trainer on GMTV for a while. Then I did a program called Fit Farm on Channel 4. And around about the same time, quit triathlon and got into bike racing instead. And also realized that I didn't like the whole sort of selling your soul to Endemol TV reality shows very much. It would just you, you think you're going to like doing that sort of thing, and you think it's the right thing to do until you do it, and then you realise that it actually makes you quite miserable in it if, if it's not your thing. Yeah. So that was sort of getting into sort of 2008, and met my wife. We knew that we had a child on the way, and I was training uh, the kind of people I was training in London. It's it's very cliche, but as a personal trainer, and you're doing it. To, to make money at that point I wasn't training athletes because you know making sweeping generalizations a lot of them are as poor as a church mouse so I was training hedge funders sort of you know it really was a bunch of C and D list celebs and all those sorts of people in London because of that sort of press I got and a small splattering of a, a small splattering of them in 2008 started saying, "Look, we know that you're an elite cyclist. We'd really like to go for a bike ride. Can I borrow one of your bikes? And can we go for a ride?" And I genuinely remember thinking at the time, "This is such a ball ache. You know, I'm going to have to do this to keep them happy, but they're going to go for one ride and then just not be interested." And what I realised that well, what I know now was the beginning of this big renaissance and cycling was that it stuck and they wanted to do it again and you know this was when the financial downturn was just biting but it was also the time when you know Cav and and Wiggins were just sort of starting to rise to prominence and they they kept on saying we go again and again and then then we thought god we should set up a club to look after these guys so we did and we thought what should we call it and we thought let's call it in the end, we settled on my wife's middle name and my middle name. She was Camilla. I was Wyndham. So we ended up calling it Windy Miller, which is fine for a club because a club's just a bit of fun. And I don't know if you remember, there was a kid's program called Trumpton back in the day that had a character called Windy Miller. So for anyone that can remember that, it doesn't really send off the right vibe. It's a bit playful and it's quite divisive. But when we evolved into a bike brand, which I'll tell you about in a minute, we the name sort of stuck and I, I never liked it. I always felt that it was a blocker. But 
anyway, we set up that club and then they said, you know, where, where can we get a bike? And I'm like, well, what sort of bike do you want? And, and you know, their, their sort of typical hedge funder response, I know this is all very cliche, but it's completely true, was, um, you know, what, what's the bicycle equivalent of my Aston Martin? And I was like, well, I know Phil and Julian at Cycle Fit, they're, they're the best bike fitters or at that point, more or less the only bike fitters in town. You can go there and they have this custom brand called Sorota. So started sending more and more people their way. Then then Parley got on my radar and a guy called Barry Scott had just started Bespoke Cycling, which is still going strong now. So we started sending a lot of people to him. Then the credit crunch was biting harder. We knew we had a kid on the way. Personal training is great if you if you want to race at elite level and you train people in the morning and in the evening and you can train yourself in the middle of the day. But once you have kids and you actually want some stability in your life, it's an awful industry to be in. I mean, not so much now because you can do a lot more stuff on online but that didn't exist back then so i thought god we're you know barry and phil and julian doing really well out of us we're sending loads of customers their way but also i was thinking these parlies and these serotas they're starting at five grand for the frame set and this was like back in 2008 and i was thinking even these hedge funders are going to start thinking twice if this credit crunch starts to bite really hard. So it was sort of born out of the financial downturn and the fact that we wanted something more stable in our life. Obviously, it ended up being the polar opposite, actually. But, you know, I thought it must be possible to make a custom bike and keep it European and bring the price down. And actually, we did pull that off. At the beginning, we really pulled that off and we... We created a custom bike brand, never sort of sat down and thought, let's make a brand foundation. Let's think about who our customers are. Never thought, let's raise a proper amount of capital, sort of did it off the back of a small bank loan and converting our shed. So as you do, you know, when you're that sort of age and it's sort of everything was in its infancy as well. So even if you tried to lay down a brand foundation, there wasn't really much of a sort of benchmark to set it from because yeah, customers yeah. were only just starting to appear so you couldn't really work out how you're going to tap into the psyche of your customer because no one really knew who it was then it's far more clearly defined now yeah. so so that's how we embarked on that windy miller journey of making made to measure bikes that you know it was a british brand but fundamentally they were always made in italy which at the start was totally fine because the prices were good there's there was no real massive design language in a frame because at that point most tubes were still round and the company we used predominantly was 90 percent oem production so 90 percent of what they did was making frames for other people towards the end they got way more into their own brand and then also everything became aero so every frame started to have quite a distinct design language so it became very obvious that frames were our frames were coming from the same place and we ended up in this very bizarre situation that both myself and the main manufacturer we knew acknowledged was quite weird but we were both their customer and their competitor and you could just see how you know that wasn't going to work long term and it it did become more and more difficult and at the same time more and more people cropped up many of whom were fabricating in-house which 
adds this really fundamental layer of credibility that you just can't have if you're outsourcing your actual fabrication to other people, even though the end product is yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. fantastic. You know, we got 10 out of 10 reviews at, at Windy Miller, but we couldn't say we'd fabricated the frame ourselves. And genuinely, towards the end, we had the budget to mold and design our own tubes. And so it did mean that you, you owned the IP, but people it's just the romance of that process of fabricating a frame putting the frame together and you know the distinction i'm talking about i'm not talking about uh bolting the group set on i'm talking about the actual fabrication of that frame and i know brands in this country that do really well with it i mean enigma is a good example they make these amazing titanium frames and i, I think they're yeah. a bit of the best kept secret they do very well but people don't know to great enough extent with enigma that those frames are meticulously handmade in-house uh down some hailsham way but for people that do know you can go there you can see your frame being made you can do a factory tour and that layer of credibility is is what really turns someone from a fan to a customer and then a brand advocate and you know then you can get scale so i mean the windy middle bikes were that were steel right that was the the predominant uh, um, no, material. they were always predominantly carbon, actually. So uh, okay. we, when we started, we did carbon and aluminium. And the only reason we did the aluminium was that we were conscious that we, we, we always punched above our weight with marketing. So with our sort of direct community, there were people that, despite anything, just wanted a Windy Miller bike because they liked the community and wanted to be a real part of it. But our immediate community weren't necessarily the kind of people that had the money to to spank on a sort of 3k frame set which which was our sort of numbers at that point so the only reason we did aluminium was so that we could have a lower price point for people who wanted to be a brand advocate but couldn't afford a carbon bike and and actually the irony is we'd sell those bikes for less but the margin was a lot lower on them too so it wasn't something we continued to do forever as we realized that aluminium wasn't really a, a viable prospect and yeah. towards the end we dabbled a little bit in steel or at least sort of uh, windy miller obviously grew so towards the end i wasn't necessarily making all the decisions or at least i wouldn't stop people going down other other routes and there was a a, a section of our community or 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 the Windy Miller team that wanted to go down the steel route and made fantastic steel bikes. But it's a very, it's another very difficult part of the market, high-end steel, because they are generally made. I mean, Columbus makes the most wonderful steel tubing now. And yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people making steel bikes out of Columbus tubing. And again, there's that same distinction. Some people are actually fabricating the frames themselves, welding in-house. Some people are outsourcing it. And in both instances, it's difficult because it's quite a high price point and there's definitely a market there, but it's not a huge market and there's a lot of players in it because it's become very fashionable. That sort of almost hipster sort of steel bike thing. And and the real distinction in that market now is is the paint and how they're painted. And beyond yeah, that, they're, they're fundamentally very similar. Amazing bikes. And of course, companies are defined by the service you get and the community that's associated with them and all those sorts of things. But yeah, steel, high-end steel is, is a tough place to be, I think. Yeah. And going back to the carbon bit then, did, did you mean that it was difficult to sort of use a, an OME factory when you're more of a sort of boutique brand? Because the, the, the 
bigger names out there, the the specialized, the Trex, the Derossas, they're they're also using sort of third party factories, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they they are, and um, and it's funny that when when you're that big, no one's really sort of looking at the minutiae of where they're built. But as a smaller brand, um, yeah. people really do, and I think it's. Largely because the people that buy a custom bike are further down what I call the avid journey, which is that journey of cycling coming on your radar, jumping on the bandwagon, yeah. you get the bug, you might yeah. buy your first bike secondhand. Your second one is the most common price point with avid cyclists, which is around the £2,500 mark. And you might get that one from Evans or somewhere slightly more informed. By the time you're someone who's decided to risk divorce and all of your disposable income just on cycling and you're thinking about getting a custom bike, those sorts of people are really going into the details. So they're far more likely to care about you know the who's actually made this bike and they'll they'll dig deep enough if nothing else just to find out that one brand's making them in house and another brand isn't and you know very naturally gravitate over to the one that's making them in the house because it's just this really black and white thing that you you just can't get away from it's um it's it's something that that people like and yeah, yeah they're interested in i just find it interesting that some of the bigger brands manage to get away with that but i suppose that's 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 the power of huge marketing budgets and spends i suppose yeah exactly and sponsoring world tour team yeah right. yeah because when you think about it a lot of the bigger brands as well were that their bikes were made in their country of origin and now they're all not but you know the bikes are just as good you know and there's no there's no distinction in the quality other than having you know that the the main distinction is having quality control and attention to detail because you do get issues with attention to detail not not necessarily the overall quality of the bike but dealing with third parties is you know especially third parties that are in the business of attention to detail unfortunately it's something that often is really difficult to manage and, and and actually can really can really chew away at, at your ability to to be profitable especially when you're doing one-offs i guess that becomes easier when you're working with monocots on a on a very high production scale but yeah yeah okay cool so but before we sort of come on to sort of, sort of le- leaving when wendy miller and your next ventures talk us through the the, the team because you had great success with the brand you did all sorts of different things events and tell us about how the team came about and, and that journey as well it must have been a fascinating experience yeah so early doors in terms of marketing when we started social media hadn't really gathered pace so and there was a few people who were starting to do well with teams i think Rafa Condor always did quite nicely with their team and it just at the time it was sort of the obvious channel to go down was to have a team and we got quite well known for pink at the beginning because we just had a men's team at the beginning even though we were trying to use the brand to level the playing field and make it a less male dominated arena which it really was even more so back then so we just as a point of cheap irony I suppose we put the men's team completely in pink which was a bit of a and it it just sort of stuck but we uh we then had we had one teammate who was mates with Magnus Backstead and um he was about a foot 
shorter than Magnus, but Magnus was interested to have a go on his bike and his Windy Miller bike, this is, and he absolutely loved it. And it was at the same time that he was having, Magnus was having negotiations with Nigel Mansell about stepping the UK youth team up to UCI level. And they decided to go ahead and do that. And then they asked if we'd be interested in doing the bikes. And obviously we were, this was 2012, so we were still tiny. So I just went on a mission and thought, right, what can I do to make this happen? So being a persuader and all that, I managed to get secondary sponsorship, which is whereby you get someone who gets to put their logo on the kit, who will front all the money for your bike frames, and then you sell them at the end of the year and pay them their all their capital back. So in the end, they get that sponsorship without any capital outlay, but they, they give you the capital to be able to do it over that year. I also had a keep me awake at night, lying stiff as a board in bed, thinking, what if we don't sell these bikes? 59,000 pounds one year invoice with Madison that year. So there was a lot of risk, but it was our breakthrough year. It really was 2012. Um, it was the Olympic year. We had this sort of Union Jack logo on the bikes Magnus was on the team. Yanto Barker was on the team. He got some good results. Won a few rounds of the Tour Series. We're in the Tour of Britain. I remember Wigo following us on Twitter after he had been in the sort of laughing group in the Tour of Britain off the back. Him and Cav were both in a group off the back with, needless to say, UK UCI team. A few of our riders were in that group as well. And Wigo being into mod culture was loving the Union Jack on the back of the shorts. And so it was just, yeah, created a lot of noise for us that year. And it was the first year that we didn't have to try really hard to sell our bikes and people would just call up and say, yeah, I want one of these bikes. And the other thing it did, it meant that when that team came to an end, all the bikes just sold really quite rapidly, which was very lucky because that, that would have killed us in a heartbeat if those bikes hadn't sold because we had the second sponsor and we had that huge invoice with Madison. So bar a few bikes that literally one of the bikes actually came back in the musette, believe it or not, it had been so thoroughly crashed that literally it's like, which bike is this? This is just a rear mech or a front mech or whatever it was. So yeah, that wasn't ideal. And we we realized that the team had been kind of underinsured but actually yeah so we lost a bit of money but not not a huge amount and overall it was very much worthwhile and that you know to to sort of conclude on the team thing that then evolved into a team the following year again with Magnus uh but we had a women's team the following year under the name of MG Maxi Fuel and we were lucky enough that believe it or not it's hard to believe now but Hannah Barnes couldn't find a ride because there just weren't that many women's teams around so she joined our team and she won 27 races that year and just did so many heroic things on the bike there was a round of the tour series where she fell off got back on her bike and still won the round and then afterwards just casually wandered off to the ambulance got nine stitches I think in her chin and then went off to you know stand on the podium so very cool yeah and uh so that was a that was another great year for us from the team perspective and these were teams i mean that team was run on a massive shoestring just calling in all the favors um but she then went on to united healthcare the next year she's on canyon sram now so real success story and we were very lucky to have her sort of have her breakthrough year on our watch 
Yeah, and I suppose that shows the power of, of getting team sponsorship right. I think that, you know, I know that Windy Meadow had been a massive um, success as a brand here in the UK. I mean, during your sort of rise, I wasn't actually in the country. So I sort of, you came onto my consciousness re- really through the success with, with the women's cycling team. That's where I first sort of heard of Windy Miller. So more internationally, I think it, it probably did did you a lot of, lot of good, I think. Yeah, whereabouts were you at that time? Where were you? I was, I was 10 years in Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong ah, for 10 years, from, okay. from 2010 to last year, or nine years, yeah. My brother lives in Hong Kong as a sideline. He's been there ever since I was 17. That's also where um, David Miller grew up and managed to ride his bike lots in his formative years in Hong Kong. Still managed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I managed to catch up with him at a Brompton event over there and there's some great cycling in Hong Kong actually it's, it's, it's brilliant riding and a great a great community as well yeah. really good community in Hong Kong and Singapore similar amazing cycling community in Singapore I as keep well. meaning to go to Hong Kong I'm a bad brother I last visited my brother in Hong Kong in 2001 so I, I definitely owe him a visit um, yeah you should and make sure you take the bike as well I, it's, it's uh we'll definitely hook you up with a There'll be people listening to this over in Hong Kong who, who will definitely volunteer to take you out for a ride. Yeah, well, bike, bike always goes everywhere anyway. So, so yeah, so on the team front, we, we really enjoy doing the, the women's side of things. And, you know, again, always punching above our weight from a marketing perspective, especially on the women's side, because we, we did custom paint and we had our own in-house clothing brand we loved the amount of national champions we had because you can have real fun with that so we had the irish national champion we had hannah who was the british criterion champion we had tamiko butler who was the more random one the national champion of antigua and barbuda but we still you know did the bike did the kit on the men's side we had the swedish national champion it's not actually a uci sanctioned national champion but we had the welsh one as well so that was you know and that that was all you know in the first five years so that was amazing yeah. for us i must have been a fascinating journey i'm sure i'm sure there was a, a roller coaster living it at the time but looking back on it, it must have some incredibly fond memories of the time and yeah. great experience yeah. as well it was never the whole 10 years was never anything short of a of a of a white knuckle ride but you know i wouldn't have had it any other way and you can't it couldn't have been anything different, you know, to lay foundations, to do things that are that intrepid in cycling. It's just never going to be easy because you're in a, you're in an industry where whichever way you turn it, there's bricks and mortar, there's high cost of sale. There's, it moves very fast. There's always, it's always difficult to get product when you need it. You know, supply and demand is always on a knife edge and yeah, definitely a white knuckle ride, but you learn so much. I was going to say learning so much. And that, that sort of brings us nicely to, sort of where, where things sort of concluded with you and what's next. Talk us through the sort of conclusion with, with Wendy Miller as you sort of moved on and, and then we can delve into what's what's coming next for you. Yeah, so w- with Wendy Miller, we uh, w- one of our shareholders came on board in a bigger way towards the end. And, um, you know, we chewed through various ideas, did, did, some, did some very cool stuff in 2019. And then we was sort of there was a merger of sorts with spoon customs and different ideas about how we could move things forward and there was at that point there was enough people involved that i realized for the first time i don't necessarily need to stay there and it had been 10 years and the route that they wanted to go in and are still going in is a really credible really good route and i think you know they're doing amazing stuff with their paint shop i love what spoon customs does with its steel bikes you know they're 
they're, they're, I think you think of them in a, in a way that someone curates things in a museum. They're the most beautifully curated bikes. But I wanted to challenge myself in a different way. And I realized that what I needed, what I wanted to do was almost like a complete reset. And when you've got a business that's 10 years in, you, you can't really reset it completely. So there was just a very clear point where I suddenly thought, you know what, I, I think you guys can do this on your own. You very definitely don't need me now. And I was lucky enough that one of the other directors, there was three of us, was keen enough on their plans moving forward to buy my shares. And so, yeah, we just decided that they would go their way and I would go mine and, you know, very supportive of each other. And obviously there was an understanding that we're all in the bike industry and it's big enough to serve all of us. And, you know, notionally, I might continue to pursue things in the bike industry, which everyone was completely comfortable with. So that sort of led me on to where I am now. I would say that COVID changed it all and press fast forward, but, you know, we, we can talk about that a bit more. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's nice that it sort of ended amicably. And as you said, look, the, the sand pit's big enough for everyone. It's a, it's a big old industry and continuing to grow. So, so, so obviously COVID fast forwarded things, as you mentioned, where, where, where how much can we divulge and, and where are you at with things now? You mentioned at the beginning of the pod that it's been a, a constructive and, and positive experience for you in many ways, COVID. Tell us, tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, so so the whole way through Windy Miller uh, and that 10 years, one, one of the things that I enjoy most about the cycle industry is building relationships and the network you have off the back of that. And obviously there's sort of, yeah. you, you can you can gauge the success of a business in different ways, but there's sort of elements of credibility you get for some of the things you do and there's an understanding of some of the things that could have been done differently. But I gathered a really good network of people through the years. And I, I suppose for me, if I could have a fantasy football team of people that I would want to work with, if I ever did something new, I had a very clear picture in my mind of who those people were. And yeah. even trying to engage those people whilst at Windy Miller, the problem then was that they were all really busy and I was always really busy. So we could just about find the time to talk about ideas and get a bit excited about them, but never put them into action. And even yeah. even if COVID hadn't happened, for a lot of these people, they were just in industries where it freed up time for them. So in particular, I had uh, one mate called Phil Dempsey, who is, I, I would call Phil a creative engineer. And creative engineers are you know, uh, very skilled as an engineer in, in the nicest possible way, always a little bit crazy, but that's why they're creative. And yeah. Phil and I, Phil had a bike brand actually, which he, he eventually put down to concentrate on actually making, bringing mass production to the UK. That's his sort of thing now. And he realized, you know, by his own admission, he's not a marketeer for him. He just wants to be the engineer behind the scenes, sort of, which is, very on point now and he, he's he's sort of working on bringing s steel fabrication to the uk in a way that can be competitive with china which is sort of very on point with wow. brexit and everything else and the government are very much behind that so there's a lot of government support for people that are beating that drum but we yeah. talk about ideas over the whole 10 years because we're in the industry together we used to go to the pub sort of once every three months which 
more or less made up the entirety of my social life for those 10 years having young kids and stuff. And we'd get excited about stuff, but we, we never even had any pretense that we were going to action them at that point because we both knew fine well that we were more or less firefighting 100% of the time. Yeah. Then I stepped away from Windy Miller and our next meeting in the pub just happened. I, I sort of concluded that whole process with Windy Miller in February. And I think our next meeting in the pub was just when in the press they were saying anyone going to the pub is really irresponsible. And I think about two days later, there was the full lockdown. But we went to the pub and um, he had a bit less, slightly less noise in his life because of COVID. Obviously, I was footloose and fancy free. And we just started talking about 3D printing and new technologies that were on the horizon and how 3D printing was making a really distinct move from being something that you could make sort of toys or computer mounts with to something where you could really start to make functional parts that had structural integrity. So we just thought, right, we've got time. I've got a little bit of money. He's already got a engineering environment. So we were genuine that, you know, the, the most important commodity that we needed wasn't money because we didn't need much. We needed an environment. We needed a bit of machinery. We needed a 3D printer, which we were loaned. So we had all of that stuff there. So we just started experimenting and we got further and further into it and then started thinking more and more about what we could do with it and where we could take it. And we started playing around with some ideas that we were really quite excited about. And then there was this moment where a few people got in touch saying, hey, we've heard what you're doing. This sounds really exciting. In fact, Bike Biz was one of them saying, you know, we'd love to do a feature on this. And on the one hand, we thought this is really cool. But we also really panicked and thought, how do people know about this? You know, this is sort of stuff yeah. that's patentable. So we were really worried that someone might steal our thunder. So off the back of that, myself and the sort of brain trust of people that knew about it decided that we better start talking about the technology a little bit on social media so we went ahead and did that which we hadn't planned to do it we just thought we need to take ownership of these ideas even if it's just on social on on my social media so at least the echo chamber knows and by the echo chamber i mean all the people within the cycling industry where there's two degrees of separation so i don't necessarily mean the customer but just you know everyone else who knows each other through someone in, in the british cycling industry yeah. so that's why we did it and it actually turned out really well for us because it, it meant that a few media organizations got in touch it meant that a lot of people got in touch saying, are you planning to do anything with this? If you are, we'd be interested in backing it. And then we also got people, we, we did a lot with, without going off on another tangent. We did a lot within F1 with Windy Miller and we got some of the people that fabricate parts for Formula One getting in touch saying, you know, we'd be interested to be involved in this project. And that led on to other people that are very big in 3D printing that, that have designs you know a whole plethora of bikes that have got gold medals and and won world tour races and things like that so all of a sudden we're like oh my god this has really stepped up a gear we could do something yeah. with this getting real yeah getting really real and and even then even now it's like you know what do we do with it you know we, we've it, it's 
it's so much of a different animal. Windy Miller was, you know, we're making bikes. This this really is a sort of technology think tank at the moment. We we managed to get everybody socially distanced in a boardroom up in the sort of F1 heartlands in the sort of Midlands. And uh, I just looked around the table and I thought, my God, you know, the people in this room, you, you couldn't have a better bunch of people to do something really flipping exciting in the UK and when you consider yeah. that there's in in the UK in particular right there, there's one company in Ireland but in the UK in particular there's there's no one making every part of a carbon fiber bicycle in the UK on a on a real production level there's lots of really credible people doing it on a more sort of cottage industry level where they're you know, making bikes in the tens, but no, no one sort of competing for a share of that sort of slightly different custom market, like your Parleys or your Sevens or your Beskers uh, and people like that. So, yeah, so it's, it's basically a new journey, a new technology potentially, and obviously this has been enabled by uh, advances in technology around three D printing, and you're still sort of putting the final pieces of the jigsaw together is that right yeah that's right so we're still we're at that stage now where where you know quite i mean my my wife quite rightly has said if if you start a new business and it's another white knuckle ride for another 10 years i'll kill you so i I don't want to be murdered so i've always got that in the back of my mind i can't be murdered and i can't create a monster so I, I just wouldn't yeah. allow that to happen. So it's really, it's got to a stage now where there's not really anything else for us to do. We've worked out that it's all possible. So it's just a question of, should we take the plunge and do something with this? And and it's an, it's exciting. We're right at the sharp end because, you know, we if we're going to make that decision, we're going to make it in 2020. You know, if, wow. if, if we do something, we want it to be something that, was born in the most memorable of years and you know i started windy miller at the start of one of the biggest financial downturns so why not start something new uh in the middle of a pandemic i don't mean to worry you but you realize there's only 16 working days of 2020 left for you to make this decision (laughs) i know (laughs) we are we are right at the sharp end so cool yeah so so that's exciting and um yeah we'll see that's very cool. We'll have to we'll have to get you back on early next year if, if if obviously things move forward. But you know, going back to the Formula One piece and 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 the work that you're doing there, I, I, I assume that the interest from their side, you know, Formula One probably the most advanced in terms of engineering in many different ways. Are, are they using some of these carbon three D techniques themselves at the moment in some of the cars we're being seen driven at the moment, or is that is this on their radar? Are they sort of looking into what they can do with it as well? So. So more, there's there's a lot of uh, 3D printed parts on Formula One cars that are made with metal. And at, at the moment, at the moment, metal is, is still a better, you know, talking parts of bike frames, it's still a better material to use than carbon fiber at the moment because carbon fiber 3D printing yeah. is on a really rapid journey. I mean, there, there are companies, there's a company in the US that's professing to have made an entire frame out of 3D printed carbon fiber and without going into the technical details of how that's possible to the best of my knowledge it's still impossible so 
time will tell if that's some uh, elaborate sort of fantasy or not. But yeah, there's there's lots of 3D printing being used uh, on a level in Formula One, but also Formula One munches its way through a lot of carbon fiber. And that's one of the big yeah. things when you're small like us. If you, It never even crossed my mind to try and uh, make a frame completely British. And it, it's not like that's something that I necessarily think is a selling point, but actually... For convenience, if it can be, it would be amazing, and and it's it's yeah. it's a clear and thing that's important to say is that it's not it's not an F one team that we're dealing with now. It's um, one of the companies that fabricates parts for F one teams, and the the, the difficulty you have with F one teams is that they're always too busy working on their car to be able to do anything collaboratively on the technical side. So yeah. much better yeah. to be working with one of the companies that they outsource. Uh, things too but what it means is that we could never even begin to get close to the minimum order quantity to have our own pre-preg carbon fiber to mold our own tubes with however working with these companies that are making parts for most of the teams within formula one we're able to to be part of their minimum order quantity so there's some really nice F1 heritage because we're literally using the same carbon fiber that's going into the cars. That's very cool. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it sounds like an incredibly exciting project. And you must let us know what how things evolve over the next few weeks, won't you, in terms yeah. of what you decide to do and what's announced. And I'm sure it'll be seen in the press and we'll make yeah. sure that we, we push out. And well, we, we definitely well. will. Do, do- and also the fact that it, the, the one one positive about it all being British is that Anything where you're bringing manufacturing home, there's an enormous amount of government support, which is amazing. Yes, like, and even it, ways of funding it, there's there, there's amazing support with that as well. It's bicycles are so on point because of COVID, a bit like the financial downturn last time around that made people bury themselves in recreation more as well. We know that the market's still yes. strong at our end of the market because making a bike in this way we are going to have to be unashamedly high end because the cost of sale is high but that market is still yeah. really strong and yeah so so that's sort of on point and because of brexit you know just the notion of things that are completely made in this country is you know has got to be a positive and, and less complicated and you know an exciting journey to be on and are you in terms of potentially fundraising further down the line? I mean, if there's someone listening that, that has recognized your, your experience with Windy Miller and realizes that version 2.0 plus or your network is an exciting potential investment opportunity, are, are you interested to hear from people? Absolutely. No, they should definitely get in touch because we we still don't know exactly what direction we could take it in. You know, you could create a new brand, you could very easily create really efficient ways of fabricating that you can license to other people it could just be a means of developing the technology further there's there's so many different ways to skin the cat you know and and so and that's kind of what you're working through at the moment is whether you become that i suppose you become the ome provider for other brands potentially using the technology or you build your own you know launch your own brand these are all the things you're sort of working through at the moment yeah or or do something in cahoots with a brand that exists already so you know there, there's that notion as well there, there's still i mean it's a very small part of me because ultimately i'm sort of entrepreneurial and like taking you know like 
like being intrepid and taking risks, but there, there is a world in which you could take this technology, the machine and the sort of think tank and become part of another company that already exists, essentially become employed. Wouldn't be as exciting, but you know, the, the, all, all of these options are there. But even, even if that was a thing, if that company didn't have the war chest itself, you would probably need to come and say, yeah, I can bring this capital into the company too to make it happen. So uh, in either instance, definitely keen to talk to people. Excellent. Well, look, well, well, if it's okay with you, we'll, we'll share your email address in the show notes. And if anyone's interested in reaching out to Henry with, with any questions around what he's thinking, where the project's going or getting involved or anything else, I'm sure he'll be um, very keen to hear from you. Yeah. And apart from anything else, you know, projects like this, it's always... If, if people do get involved financially, although they have to um, invest with their head, it's always largely driven by their heart. And I love having conversations with people about what might be anyway. So it's just, just, just be nice to hear from people. Excellent. Excellent. Well, do do reach out. And in terms of sort of long longer term, I mean, this is you obviously seen a, a vast, I suppose, acceleration in the technology around 3D printing. I mean, do, do you foresee in maybe 10 years time or whatever that, you know, I could come home one day and decide to print myself a, a carbon frame in my lounge here? Is that going to be viable in the future? Yeah, 100%. And I, I think it'll be more than print it. I think you'll um, have your home printer and I think you'll print it and decide what colour you want it to be as well, because why wouldn't that printer paint it as well? Or, or it'd be cleverer than painting. It will somehow impregnate the carbon as it's printing. 100%, you know, it, 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 all the like hardcore 3D boffins need to work out is how you can lay down carbon fibre through 3D printing where you can give it strength in every direction and then uh, and and speed it up and make it less expensive which is quite a lot of things which is why you probably are talking 10 years but it'll 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 definitely happen and it stands to reason if it did wouldn't that be how all bikes were made i think so and also there's a warning for for everyone out there yeah (laughs) don't come home from the pub and and, uh, buy yourself a frame yeah exactly and i think also just regardless of how bikes are actually made if if someone ever asked me what I think the future of bikes is, my answer would more or less be one word, which is integration. Because a bike is still made up of so many different component parts. Even if you're like gathering those component parts for a full bike, you're dealing with a plethora of different companies and so many different standards and stuff like that. And I just think as technology advances, the bike's just going to get more and more simple and more and more integrated, more and more proprietary, I suppose, because by the nature of the beast, if everything's integrated, it's all got to be made in one place, probably just in the 3D printer. Yeah. Well, which would make life a lot easier, right? I mean, I think that's part part of the issue. If you you snap something off now or something breaks to get a like a replacement tiny piece from shimano or, or you know it, it's a it's expensive they're incredibly expensive these things and b it's often a faff to get so if you could just go into your lounge and print it out that will make life a lot easier yeah that's it and in 20 years time you'll be able to print out your bike and you'll be able to print out your takeaway as well i reckon i just saw in the press today that they've found a way to 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 grow chicken in a lab without actually having to kill a chicken so stands to reason that there'll be some kind of printer where the where the artificial chicken shoots down some kind of subterranean network and gets fired out into chicken nuggets from your 3d printer at home so that's food for thought literally food for thought literally food for thought yeah that blows my brain a little bit that's a bizarre concept very good henry thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with us is there there anything else you wanted to mention or bring up or have i missed anything out no i don't think so but 
Yeah, just to say, watch this space on the uh, 3D printed takeaway space. Maybe that's um, where it's at. Maybe I should be barking up that tree. There you go. Yeah, hell, hell, go, go full circle to your personal training days, sort of tailored nutrition printed in your kitchen. Yeah, I'm thinking more burger and chips, though, than healthy stuff. But anyway. Fair enough. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I really appreciate it, uh, given how busy you are. And uh, all the very best with whatever you decide to do. Please do let us know. Stay in touch and uh, let, let's let's schedule in another catch up in the new year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Julian. Take care of yourself. Good to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.